the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, February 10th. I'm your reader, Will Potter. Let's start off today with the article, Shive Hattery Will Guide Cedar Rapids School's Plan. Board may try bond vote in 2025 after last one rejected. A locally based architectural and engineering firm promises to collaborate with the community to create a facility for the Cedar Rapids Community School District that will be met with enthusiasm and excitement. The Cedar Rapids School Board on Thursday evening announced unanimously approval on an $850,000 agreement with Shive Hattery, a firm based in Cedar Rapids, to help guide planning to make a to take a general obligation bond referendum to district voters, possibly in November 2025. The agreement comes after three months after voter over, voters overwhelmingly said no to a twenty after a, to a two hundred and twenty million dollar bond issue for Cedar Rapids schools. They need to reach the voters of the previous bond referendum. It's a key component to moving forward. Schools District Operations Director Chad Schumacher told the Cedar Rapids School Board, Shive Hattery already drove into gathering voter data. We know what they're going to we know they're going to lead us to a successful PPEL and bond vote. In September, voters in the district will be asked to consider extending the physical plant of equipment levy for an additional 10 years. The levy is an existing capital projects fund for the purchase and improvement of grounds, construction and remodeling buildings and major equipment purchases including technology. Under the, agree- under the agreement approved Thursday, Shive Hattery and other consultants would review existing research on the district's infrastructure, create a facility plan, engage the community, le- lend assistance in bond and campaign, and create conceptual plans for the school projects. The agreement is, re- is a result of the district requesting proposals from consulting firms for the general obligation bond efforts. A committee of twenty interviewed five firms that a committee of twenty interviewed five firms that submitted proposals. Here's a subheader. Cedar Rapids School Board Confident. School board members land lauded the proposal made by Shive Hattery. Caitlin Byers, who is in her first term on the board after being elected in November, said that she feels confident in the team's abilities. I personally get very excited when we say things like shared vision and community, she said. Those are central to making this work. Board Vice President David Tomsky said community engagement is absolutely critical as the district considers a new facility plan. It felt like a step back when the bond referendum failed in November, Tomsky said. But it also told us we need to understand thoroughly what the community is looking for. I do think the community wants significant change in our facilities so we can serve our kids better. School board member Nancy Humbles and President Cindy Garlock said that they appreciate the focus on students and learning. It's about what's best for our students and best learning opportunities for them, Garlock said. Another subheader. Post-mortem bond surveys. Shive Hattery will start the process of mailing surveys to the almost 88,000 registered voters within Cedar Rapids Community School District as a post-mortem on the failed bond, said Greg Keynes. 
its marketing director. Voters all also also will have a virtual option for feedback. Building trust starts by listening and giving people a voice, Khan said. A second survey will be sent to residents early in 2025, test the market, tell whether we're back on track, Khan said. It will be a barometer of what's to come. The community survey specialist that Shive Hattery will work with, School Perceptions, gets up to 20% of the people responding to similar surveys, Khan said, which can lead to a good forecast on how voters will lean in future bond proposals. And now the next subheader, Experts in Education Architecture. The agreement between Shive Hattery and the district also includes MA Architecture, the firm based in Oklahoma that provides professional services in interior design, master planning, bond making, and furniture selection for schools and other organizations. One of the architects on the project will be Gary Armbruster, a principal architect at MA+, and one of only seven accredited learning environment planners in Oklahoma. Armbruster was one of the only architect appointed to serve on the Oklahoma School Security Commission following the 2012 shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newton, Connecticut, where 20 students and six adults were killed. MA Plus Architecture has consulted on a similar bond project in Oklahoma City Public Schools, where a bond issue was successfully passed in November 2022 after it previously had failed. Like the proposed bond last year in the Cedar Rapids District, Oklahoma City Public School bond was the largest referendum proposed in the state, faced opposition from preservation activist groups, and there was a disconnect between the school district and the city, Armbruster said. Also on the project is Shive Hattery education architect Michael Kleen, who is specializing in crime prevention through environmental design, a theory to prevent crime by by designing a physical environment that positively influences human behavior. Acqui Deji, Shives Hatterty's communication strategist, will assist the project by building emotionally charged storytelling initiatives and campaigns that are information-based to boost engagement and enthusiasm and trust in the school district, she said. Ji is a former communications director for the Cedar Rapids Community School District, resigning from the position in 2020. She graduated from Washington High School and later taught there for more than a decade. Ji said the team will work to bring residents around a shared vision and goal. To do that, a common language will need to be created around what it means to have updated, renovated, modern, and future-ready schools, she said. We're ultimately talking about massive change, Niji said. That comes with a lot of emotion. Larson Construction, a company based in Independence, is also included in the agreement between the school district and Shive Hatterty to provide cost estimating for the proposed projects. Now let's move on to another article. This time it'll be Nation's First Data Chief. Focus on the people. The data has the power to heal, unite, and inspire, or destroy, divide, and devastate, and which of these outcomes materializes depends on the people using it and their understanding of the people. It represents, according to the former and the first U.S. chief data scientist, D.J. Patil, the most important thing about data is not the data, it's 
that the data points have names, Patil told a crowd Thursday evening at Coe College's Sinclair Auditorium for its annual Contemporary Issues Forum, which over the years has welcomed dignitaries such as President George H.W. Bush, former Polish President Lech Walesa, and celebrated author Sir Salman Rushdie. By sharing the story of a woman who wrote to President Barack Obama about her stage four cancer, while Patil was the chief data scientist from 2015 to 2017, and how she and others inspired innovative data use in medical research and beyond, he exemplified the importance of focusing on the humans behind the numbers. If you don't understand them, it doesn't matter how many technical skills you have, he said. You won't be able to connect to those people to be able to understand how to solve their problems with data. The data points have names. There's a subheader that says Patil's data debut. Data scientists do, too, dating back to generations before the job title existed, such as when women who served as human computers helped break German codes during World War II. More recently, in an effort to expand data's relevance and the use to connect the dots that couldn't be seen before, an evolving crop of data scientists has found new ways to compute data, store it, distribute it, and use it. We couldn't just have traditional big supercomputers, Patil said. We needed a distributed system. We needed the cloud. We needed storage, the ability to store all this large data and put it together to be able to access it. We also needed a vibrant ecosystem, and most of all, we needed a new kind of talent. Patil is among that talent, considered among the most influential data scientists in the world. He started at De Anza College, a community college in California, where he realized, I'm pretty good at math. First, though, I was kicked out of my high school algebra class, Patil told the Gazette. He discovered his affinity for math only after following his girlfriend into a calculus class. It was a great fork in the road, he said. Which kind of person do I want to be? Would it be the kind to the kind of try to skirt by this class, or do I want to try to learn it? So I checked out all the math books I could from our local library, taught myself to catch up, and then never looked back. I ended up with a doctorate in mathematics. The doctorate came from the University of Maryland, where he remains on faculty with a research focus on nonlinear dynamics and chaos theory, helping to launch a major research initiative on numerical weather prediction. Earlier in his career, Patil served as a science and technology uh, policy fellow for the Department of Defense, where he directed efforts to leverage social network analysis to anticipate emerging threats. Then he moved to a private sector as a scientist with eBay and chief security officer of LinkedIn. After several other stints, Patil was appointed to be the first ever U.S. chief data scientist in 2015, an office charged with unleashing the power of data for the benefit of the American people. The joke is that you're the only ever. The joke is that you're the only one ever. You fail, Patil told the Gazette, noting that we've had our third U.S. chief data scientist. But he said what's even more encouraging is that the country not only had a, has a federal data scientist, but data chiefs appearing across numerous departments and the state and city levels in many areas. The reason that's so important in our day and age is because what gets measured gets fixed. Next subheader is pros and cons. Pointing to data's potential to address traffic fatalities, mental health concerns, and veteran health care, for example, 
Patil said the upside down the upside surpassed what many can imagine. While working in the White House, Patil became a founding board member of the Crisis Text Line, a nonprofit offering free and confident text-based mental health support. That over a decade recorded more than nine million conversations with people in crisis. Using data analyzed through those anonymous calls, the organization has pinpointed top stressors. With one in three texters mentioning relationship stress or dysfunction in 2022, relationships became a top stressor for the first time that year. The world is using data very efficiently to actually get the, pe the care to people, he said. But Patil has concerns, too, involving social media and artificial intelligence. Here's what I think we can concretely say. We know people are harmed and are hurt, he said. People come away with body issues. People come away hurt by the posts that people make on those platforms. We've seen predatory behavior, specifically around children and young girls in particular, on social media platforms. Artificial intelligence also is a two-sided coin, threatening to spread misinformation or promising to amplify the world's ability to address problems with such as climate change and cancer. It, can, it literally is both on any given day, he said. One side, I'm seeing so much excitement and optimism to go solve big problems, and then I'm, going, then I'm, also, going, I'm also seeing that people are weaponizing it for own, their own power, structures, or gains. To end up on the right side of that line, Patil said, thinkers from the highest level down to local community boards need to do more talking and idea sharing, like at Thursday's forum and across liberal arts institutions, be it Coe College or any other, watching enrich enrollment slip in favor of programs preparing students for specific jobs. My biggest message, especially to technologists, is to get exposure to the liberal arts, Patil said, highlighting the, a disconnect from the humanities among the threats of big data and artificial intelligence. But when you understand people, you understand the relevance of the data. How can you connect to people, not just the data, Patil asked? We have to know their names. We have to tell their stories. That's what really helps connect us. That's how we make progress. Now let's go on to the article. Company looks to build a $576 million data center in Cedar Rapids. An unnamed company is seeking city and state financial incentives to build a $576 million data center in the big Cedar, the big Cedar Industrial that would create at least 31 new high-paying jobs. In the coming weeks, the Cedar Rapids City Council is slated to consider a development agreement with Heavenside LLC for the project to build one or more data centers along 76th Southwest and Edgewood Road Southwest in the Big Cedar Industrial Center. While Heavyside is named, the company that will occupy the development is not. The city in recent years has awarded the incentives to build massive warehouses and other buildings in the rapidly growing southwest quadrant, including kitchen appliance company Sub-Zero, a $140.6 million light manufacturing company, FedEx's new $108.6 million distribution center, and BAE Systems' $139 million classified defense aerospace facility that employs 800. 
But the data center project, project, if approved, could surpass even those major investments and would be among the largest, if not the largest, economic development projected in Cedar Rapids history. The proposed development would create 31 new full-time employees paid at or above the high-quality wage rate. Construction is anticipated to start within three years of development agreement taking effect. An 890-acre certified portion of the overall Big Cedar site is Iowa's first megasite, which offers hundreds of acres of development-ready land to potential developers. All 1,391 acres are controlled by Alliant Energy. Now on to some subheaders, the first one being incentives. Under the term outlined in council documents, the company would receive a 20-year 70% tax exemption so long as it meets employment thresholds and high-quality job application is approved. The earliest Iowa Economic Development Authority Board meeting where that could be considered is March 15th. If it's not approved, according to the council documents, the city agrees to work in good faith to provide comparable tax increment financing, rebates in lieu of the tax exemption. To attract the massive data centers that have invested billions in Iowa from tech companies, including Google, Facebook, and Microsoft, the Iowa Economic Development Authority pitches Iowa on its website as having affordable and ample development authority uh, affordable and ample wind energy, a stable grid, high density of telecommunications infrastructure, and low costs for construction projects. Other financial incentives include a 20-year, 75% economic development rebate of franchise fees collected by Cedar Rapids through the electrical provider for each data center constructed a monthly credit of $1.3 per cubic feet of gray wastewater discharge provided by the city, Per unit credit would escalate each year at 2.5%, up to 57% per unit of sewer's discharge rate. The company would give annual community betterment payments to the city to increase the economic development activities, including growth of amenities and infrastructure. There would be a yearly payment of $400,000 per data center for 15 years with a maximum of $6 million per data center, $36 million in total, the company would, ha would provide the necessary easement to serve the site, including extension of utilities. The developer must cooperate with the city on any potential rev revitalized Iowa Sound Economy grants if the city is eligible and applies for one. The council in August rezoned the land west of Edgewood Road southwest and north of 76th Avenue southwest from, in, from light industrial and agriculture to general industrial, as requested by Alliant, seemingly paving the way for the project. Another project, question mark, is another subheader. Another project could be in the works thereafter, after the council in January rezoned a large portion of Big Cedar to accommodate intensive industrial users. A 245-acre parcel on the western side of the site, north of 76th Avenue and west of Tissell Hollow Road, was, was rezoned from the agricultural district to generate industrial to general industrial district. Now on to a new article. Let's read online posts cited in bid to move trial. 
the Cedar Rapids, uh, a lawyer for a Cedar Rapids man who was accused of fatally stabbing Devonna Walker last year told a judge Friday that there is a substantial likelihood that his client couldn't get a fair trial in Lynn County because of the hundreds of social media posts and videos that contained false and inflammatory information about the case. Shane Teslick, a 38, is charged with voluntary manslaughter and disorderly conduct, epithets, threatening gesture. Teslick's lawyer, John Bruzek, during a hearing asking the court to move the trial out of Lynn County, cited a Pew research study that reported 58% of people get their news from digital platforms, such as social media. That information is available for anyone to read, whether it is factual or not, he noted. Bruzek argued that the misleading or inaccurate information includes comments saying that Walker's fatal stabbing was a racist murder hate crime, she was stabbed more than once, the accused is a white supremacist, and uh, the accused didn't help or call 911. Most of the individuals making the comments have already found Tesla guilty and believe that these fabrications and inflammatory information, Bruzek said. Bruzek said that Teslik was the first person to call 911 on January 2nd, 2023, and report the incident, but those comments made online, but those comments are made online and people believe it. He argued that this that there was an orchestrated effort in the community to interfere with the case and the jury pool. Bruzek seemed to be referring to, but didn't mention by name, advocacy groups such as the Advocates for Social Justice and Standard Unity. Who protested when law enforcement and Lynn County Attorney's Office didn't make an arrest immediately after the fatal stabbing. Bruzek said that these groups or individuals had meetings with Lynn, Ta- Lynn County Attorney Nick Maybanks and the Cedar Rapids Major Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell and had an actual effect on this case, causing prejudice. He added that he didn't mean Maybanks or O'Donnell didn't uh, did anything inappropriate. Bruzek believes that the advocacy groups will try to influence the jurors. In fact, he said that they, that they have in their posts and comments. One of his exhibits submitted to the court, which was played during the hearing, was a video that somebody made that in- integrated real news clips from TV news station reports with other interviews and information that wasn't accurate. First Assistant Lynn County Attorney Monica Slaughter is arguing against moving the tr- moving the trial that there was no authority in Iowa law to consider personal media accounts of individuals and those comments. Facebook posts aren't media coverage, and actual media coverage, traditional media sources, in this case hadn't been pers- pervasive and inflammatory. Slaughter said that there is no information on the, m- the comments who wrote them, where they live, whether it's in the district or outside of Iowa. In, the, in defense, in its exhibits, mentioned Jermaine Cooper, a, man, a member of the Advocates for Social Justice. Cooper spoke in the video Bruzek showed and is posting on his social media account, but Slaughter pointed that it only had around 650 followers. The defense overestimates Cooper's reach. She added, Slaughter said any prejudices and biases from potential jurors can be weeded out during the jury selection and with pretrial questionnaires. That's the point of the process, she said. 
Even if the trial is moved, any of the social media accounts and comments will still be available online, Slaughter noted. She said that the motion is premature because no one will know if the jury pool has been prejudiced by social media. Sixth Judicial District Judge Besler said that he would take some time to review all the submitted exhibits, but did say the trial, the traditional media coverage in this case hadn't been pervasive and inflammatory. The defense's argument seemed to be an expansion, based on social media, of, the, of this law, Besler said. He will review the exhibits again, but many of them seem to be from the same accounts and same people commenting, he said. It is clear that these people commenting can't be on the jury, Besler said, so it's good information to have in ensuring that there is a fair and impartial jury for Tesalik's trial. Besler said that if there are no issues with protesters or some interference with the trial, the court can take steps to prevent those. He noted that, that he and other judges in this district have done it in the past. He also said that if he does decide to move the trial, that they can take it up later if it's not possible to find impartial jurors. Self-defense claim. This is a new subsection, self-defense claim. According to a criminal complaint, Teslik, who is white, had called Walker, who is black, an abusive racial epithet or a slur before she charged at him, pushing Teslik's wife to the ground. Walker then struck Teslik twice in the left side of his head before he stabbed her, the complaint sa stated. Teslik was provoked by Walker's assault on him and his wife and acted out of a sudden, violent, irresistible passion, according to the complaint. Teslik didn't regain control or suppress the impulse to kill and used a knife that he retrieved from his home and stabbed Walker in the left side of her chest. Walker, a mother of three, died from the stab injury. The autopsy showed one fatal stab wound and alcohol and drugs in her system. At trial, Teslik plans to claim that he had the right to defend himself in his home against an unlawful entry by force, but of another according to a motion he filed last April. In that motion, he also said that he had the right to defend himself against a forcible felony, i.e. first-degree burglary. Now let's go on to the article. Ex-University of Iowa conductor alleges sexual harassment. A former University of Iowa orchestra conductor is suing the school, alleging sexual harassment and discrimination. Melissa Brunette's lawsuit filed in Polk County's District Court alleged gender-based discrimination, sexual harassment, retaliation, and unequal pay violations of the Iowa Civil Rights Act. Brunette was an orchestra conductor and an assistant professor at the University of Iowa School of Music until she resigned in May 2023, before coming to the University of Iowa in August 2021 as the school's first female director of orchestral activities Brunette was the music director at Northeastern Pennsylvania Philharmonic. The defendants in the case, which include the university, Associate Director of Undergraduate Studies Alan Huckleberry, and the College of Music Directors Tammy Walker, have yet to file a response to the lawsuit. In her suit, Brunette claims that Huckleberry repeatedly made sexual overtures while serving her as officially designated mentor. During their weekly meetings, Huckleberry would talk about his sex life, multiple sexual partners, threesomes, and his sex life with his wife, the lawsuit asserts. On multiple occasions, Huckleberry allegedly invited Dr. Brunette into, to his home, including inviting her to stay the weekend with him and his wife. 
Huckleberry, the lawsuit claims, made numerous statements that made it clear that he was trying to groom Dr. Burnett to have sex with him or him and his wife in exchange for his support of Dr. Burnett in the music department. In November of 2021, Burnett requested a new mentor, and Huckleberry allegedly began shaming and berating her, telling her he would ruin her career at the university. The suit alleges Huckleberry told Burnett that he could destroy her, adding, I have a lot of power. The two subsequently had regular lunches at Huckleberry's insistence, at which Huckleberry allegedly continued to sexually harass Burnett by discussing his own sexual endeavors. The lawsuit claims that in February of 2022 text exchange, Brunette shared with Huckleberry photos of document of a from a document documentary in which she was featured. Huckleberry al- allegedly replied, "Where are the shower and bed pics?" In October of 2022, Huckleberry allegedly pulled his support for Dr. Brunette within the department, undermining her efforts to receive tenure and sowing discord between Brunette and her supervisor Walker, the college's director. And here's a subheader, unequal pay. Brunette allegedly complained about the conduct to the university ombudsman, the dean of liberal arts and the, of sciences and human resources, the Title IX office and the school's office of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Nothing was done to address Dr. Brunette's concerns, the lawsuit claims. The lawsuit also alleges that Brunette was underpaid when compared with her male counterparts in the music department, many of whom served in lesser roles. The male director, who held the position before Brunette, was paid at least $11,000 more, while he started well, he started than, than Brunette when she, was, than she started and was offered tenure. While at the university... Brunette taught courses in the School of Music and conducted or supervised four separate ensembles and was part and was provided with three teaching assistants, fewer than her male counterparts. Walker failed to support Brunette's by attending her concerts, but did attend other male-conducted concerts and would often send her congratulations to her director via email to the whole department, something that she never did for Dr. Brunette, the lawsuit claims. In May of 2023, Brunette resigned, citing issues of sexual harassment and discrimination. At that point, her lawsuit alleges that her career at the University of Iowa came to a screeching halt along with magical performances, the orchestras she led. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, February 10th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Starting with Karen Felter. Karen Felter, 84, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away Tuesday, February 6th, 2024, at Corridor Crossing Place in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. A celebration of life will take place in June. The Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Service, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, is assisting the family with arrangements. Karen was born on September 12, 1939, in Newton Township, Iowa, the daughter of Oscar and Marie Ligard Charleston. She graduated from Lake Mills High School and completed a BSN of nursing from the University of Iowa. Karen raised four children by herself during the pursuit of her nursing degree. Karen worked as a public health nurse, a a professor of nursing at Mount Mercy College, and a hospice nurse. Karen did not just light up the room when she entered, she lit it on fire. 
She was always ablaze with her life and passion and ideas. From her fiery maroon hair to the tips of her painted toes, her zest for life was unparalleled, leaving bright lipstick kisses on the faces of everyone she encountered. She sashayed through life, weighed down only by her copious amounts of jewelry that she donned each morning. Karen lived her life loud and left a hollow quietness with her passing. No one who met her could for forget her laughter, the loud, raucous sound that often descended into tears of joy pouring down her face. Karen's one true love was her family. She loved being with them and spent her retirement years traveling and living amongst them. Always ready for an adventure, she was keen to enjoy life to the fullest. Karen was a whole party in one person, and beneath the fun and intense loyal and loving sister, mother, nana, and friend. Her family has lost a bright light and a fierce defender with her leaving, and she will be deeply missed. Karen is survived by her children, Nicole and Rob Faborg, Darren and B. Felter, Sean and Shar Felter, and William Felter II. Thirteen grandchildren, seventeen great-grandchildren, and siblings Ruth Gilbert, Paul and Mary Charlson, Judy and Paul Walters, and Linda Vernon. Karen was preceded in death by her parents and siblings, Curtis Charlson, Mavis Cox, Dolores Harmus, Liana McFarlane, and Oscar Charlson Jr. Please share your support and memories with Karen's family on her tribute wall at www.stuartbaxter.com under obituaries. Kenneth Ken Keenan Kenneth Ken T. Keenan, 82, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on Tuesday, February, 20, February 6, 2024, at Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids. Memorial Mass will be held Thursday, February 15, 2024, at 8.30 a.m., with a visitation beginning at 9.30 at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Marion. Kenneth Thomas Keenan was born on August 18, 1941, to Archie and Mary F Farrell Keenan in Manchester, Iowa. He was united in marriage to Karen Muller on May 27, 1989, at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Marion. Ken worked in the purchasing field for many years. He survived, he was an avid Hawkeye fan. Survivors include his wife, Karen, their boys, Chad and Tasha Muller and Clint and Grace Muller, grandchildren, Reed and Graham, and step-grandchildren, Evan and Paxton, brother-in-law, Dennis Murdoch, very special friends, Dave Ma Malky and Terry Sakura, and several nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents, brothers, Harold and Nora, and John and Barbara, and sisters, Catherine and Roger Fink and Marlene Murdoch, and nephew Patrick. In lieu of flowers, those wishing to honor Ken's memory can make contributions directly to Upper Iowa University's Alumni Office, P.O. Box 1857 in Fayette, Iowa, 52142, directing the gift to the Ken Keenan Memorial Scholarship. The scholarship is being established at Upper Iowa University and will support students majoring in supply chain management. The family extends a warm thank you to the following people from his care team at Mercy. Jesse, Julie, Kelly, M Michelle, Brenda, and Amy, and special friends Jan Bathrin and Dave Balke. Online condolences may be directed to the family at www.cedarmemorial.com under obituaries. 
Robin Renee Trimble. Robin Renee Trimble, 69, passed away Thursday, February 8th, 2024, at Virginia Gay Hospital, Vinton, following a brief illness. Per Robin's wishes, there will be no services. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Van Stehusen Tihan Funeral Home is caring for Robin and her family. Robin was born June 28, 1954, in Long Beach, California, the daughter of Horace and Margaret Nadine Roach. She attended school in Lakewood, California. On April 26, 1997, Robin was united in marriage to Paul Trimble at the Urbana Christian Church. Throughout her working career, Robin cleared home, cleaned homes, worked at various groups' homes, and provided care for the residents of Virginia Gay Nursing and Rehab, and thrived on her best job of being a mom and a grandma. Robin had many loves, of few, a few of those being each of her hippie years, spending time at the beach, enjoying her natural habitat, and spending time with her sisters, and baking cookies and brownies for her favorite people, her grandchildren. Left to cherish Robin's memory are her husband, Paul, daughter, Joey and Jeremy Braden, two sons, Dwayne Trimble and Ben and Adam Trimble, five granddaughters, Maria and Drew Schultz, Kylie Cooper, Peyton Cooper, Dakota Trudsdell, Sydney Cooper, and Rayleigh Trimble, a grandson, Carter Trimble, five great-grandchildren, Aaron Sawyer, Bao, Cryan, and Judy, two sisters, Mardine Smith and Terry, St- Terry Stroud, brother Harold Ro- Roach, and her special dog, Callie. She is preceded in death by her parents and sister, Sharon and David Prue. Memorials may be directed to Virginia Gay Nursing and Rehab at 502 North 9th Avenue in Vinton, Iowa. Um... Five five two three four nine. Online condolences for the family may be left at www.tehanfuneralhome.com. Now let's move over to the sports section. Starting with some Big Ten women's basketball with uh, Stoikles' night at Carver. Oh my goodness, I did that. As nearly 15,000 folks chanted her name, Hannah Stoichel kept a straight face. It wasn't easy. I was trying so hard not to smile out there, she said. Stoichel scored a career-high 47 points, the most ever by a player, male or female, at Carver Hawkeye Arena, and one short of the Iowa women's basketball record to lead the second-ranked Hawkeyes past Penn State, 111-93, in a Big Ten game Thursday at Carver Hawkeye Arena. Hannah Stoichel, clap, 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 clap. Hannah Stoichel, clap, 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 clap. The sophomore from Cedar Rapids made 17 of 20 shots from the floor, 13 of the 21 from the free throw line. She had 32 points in the second half alone. When Stoichel exited with nine seconds left and approached the Iowa bench, Caitlin Clark had a word with her. She said, I expect you to do this every game, Stoichel said. For one night, the focus shifted away from Clark's assault on the NCAA women's basketball scoring record. Clark added 27 points Thursday, sending her career total to 3,489. 
She is 38 points away from Kelsey Plum's record of 3,527. The Hawkeyes travel to Nebraska for a noon tip Sunday. If Clark doesn't set the record then, it'll be back at Carver February 15th against Michigan. But this was unquestionably Stuckel's night. She is a she obliterated her previously career high of 22 points. Maybe tomorrow I'll be, oh my goodness, I did that, she said. Stuckel scored 44 points in a high school game as a senior at Cedar Rapids, Washington against arch rival Ken, Cedar Rapids Kennedy. The Carver record has been 46 points. The Iowa women's record remains 48, set by Megan Gustafsson in the, Big tw- in the 2018 Big Ten tournament. We had so many good performances, and you've got to start with Hannah, Iowa coach Lisa Blunder said. Clark added 15 assists, but committed 12 turnovers. Kate Martin was good for 16 points and 16 rebounds. Sydney Affolter had 9 points and 10 boards. Molly Davis was battling illness and played only 3 minutes. This, however, was the Stoichel game. New... Let's go on to a new article. Uh, this is Iowa men's basketball. It's the title, Working for the Weekend. Ticket scanned, data, point, data paints a bleak picture of fan turnout at Carver Hawkeye Arena. Fran McCaffrey was hoping for a good crowd last weekend against Ohio State. One does not need to look far to understand why. It was a Friday night game. The 6 p.m. start time was helpful for any fans who had to drive back to Des Moines or other distant locals, locales afterwards. It was a winnable game against Ohio State that had lost its previous three games. Cost wasn't an issue either. Some ticket prices on StubHub before the fees were cheaper than the signature Carver cones the fans crave. After fees, it was still cheaper than the soft serve ice cream in the souvenir bowl. But according to the ticket data scanned, more seats were empty than occupied for the Hawkeyes' entertaining 79-77 win over Ohio State. It has been a consistent issue for the Hawkeyes this season. Iowa's listed attendance averages of average of 9,712 fans per game per home game ranks 10th out of the 14th teams in, in the Big Ten. Data obtained by the Gazette via public records request paints an even bleaker picture about the men's basketball turnout. In Iowa men's basketball, 13 home games so far, 12 regular season games, and one preseason ex- exhibition the Hawkeyes averaged 5,202 tickets scanned per game. That equates to more than to a mere 35% occupancy of the 14,998 seats Carver Arena, Carver Hawkeye Arena. A major winter storm in January led the season low thir- uh, 1,351 fans at the Iowa-Nebraska game. But even if you exclude that game, the average would only be 5,523. The Ohio State game had 6,875 tickets scanned, according to the Iowa Athletics. The only time when the arena was more than two-thirds full, again, based on ticket scan data, which looks at how many people are actually at the game versus how many tickets are bought, was the Hawkeyes' loss to then number 2 Purdue. You always want to grow your crowd, Iowa Athletics Director Ben Goetz told the Gazette, You want to make sure that you create an environment that everybody in your fans and your athletes enjoy being in. And if when those are down a little bit, it's our responsibility to look and figure out how we can try to address that. McCaffrey believes Iowa fans really support the team. 
the key for us, and it's been this way for a long time, is weekend games, McCaffrey said, the day before the Ohio State game. Weekend games are more amiable for fans traveling the roughly two hours from the Des Moines area, 30 minutes from Cedar Rapids, or, or hour from the Quad Cities. After an 8 p.m. start time on Tuesday, on the other hand, would mean some traveling back to Des Moines might not make it home till midnight, while possibly still having to work the next day. We make it really easy for you to watch it on TV, McCaffrey said, and they don't often, and they often don't like the start times. During a midweek, you got issues with that. They show up on the weekends typically. To McCaffrey's point, weekend home games have experienced better turnouts than weeknight home games. Iowa's weekend games have averaged 3,303 tickets scanned versus 6,390 on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday games. We don't want to use that as an excuse, but we do have to recognize that if you're playing a weekend game, a weekday game at 8 p.m., it's going to impact who's going to be able to attend, Goetz said. The 6,390 fans on average at Friday, Saturday, Sunday games will make up only 43% of the Carver-Hawkeye Arena capacity. Iowa men's basketball has also benefited from a fair share of weekend games in 2023 and 2024. Home games on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday have outnumbered weeknight games 8-5 so far this season. Three of Iowa's four remaining home games are on weekends as well. Other teams on campus and across the Big Ten have shown weeknight slots do not necessarily create an insurmountable challenge to convince fans to attend. The weeknight versus weekend dilemma does not extend, exist for Iowa women's basketball, which has sold out every home game and seen third-party ticket prices rise well into the triple digits. The Iowa women benefit greatly from having reigning National Player of the Year, Caitlin Clark, though. Looking at the population demographics, the U.S. Census defines Cedar Rapids and Iowa City combined statistical area has 454,583 people, according to a 2022 estimate. Nebraska and Purdue are in significantly smaller census-marked CSAs, yet both significantly higher men's basketball attendance numbers than the Hawkeyes. A lack of postseason success appears to drive some apathy towards the men's basketball program. In Iowa, the Iowa has gone 24 seasons without advancing to the Sweet 16 after previously going through a two-decade stretch with five trips to the second weekend of the tournament. But the regular season results, the results of the games the fans are choosing not to attend this year, have been largely positive in recent years for a program that is not traditionally men's basketball powerhouse. McCaffrey, in his 14th season leading the Hawkeyes, is the program's all-time leader in overall and Big Ten wins. The Hawkeyes have earned NCAA tournament bids in four consecutive years, the longest streak for the program since the 1980s, and it would have been five straight tournaments had COVID-19 not forced the cancellation of 2022 March Madness. Iowa has won 20-plus games in eight of the last 11 seasons after previously going six straight seasons without 20-plus wins. That's not to mention the 20, that 22 seasons when Iowa won the Big Ten tournament title. The 26 wins in that season were the second most in program history behind Tom Davis's 30-win team in 1986. This year's apathy towards the men's basketball has some subtle warning signs as early as last season. Results from the Iowa Athletics end-of-year survey is to survey to tickets buying fans 
which the Gazette obtained via a public records request, indicated that a 12-point drop in the net promoter scale from plus 39 to plus 27. The net promoter scale is a measure of fan satisfaction and loyalty that ranges from minus 100 to plus 100. The plus 27 score, while still considered healthy, was well below the plus 82 for men's wrestling and plus 83 for women's basketball. Goetz anticipates the department doing something a little more robust, a little more in-depth, than a typical mid-season end-of-survey, end-of-season survey after this season to gather more data and understand what the barriers are that exist. There's a real data analysis that has been able to under, that has to happen to be to understand who is coming. Goetz said, "When and where and why? When and where are they using their tickets? Where are those tickets coming from?" And you really have to dial in and talk not directly to your fans, those who are attending each game, and those who are not, perhaps season ticket holders in the past, and haven't renewed, try to figure out what those dynamics are. Some schools have moved into smaller, more intimate venues. Baylor, for example, moved earlier this year from the 10,284-seat Farrell Center to the 7,000-seat Foster Pavilion. Goetz has previously signaled a desire to renovate 41-year-old Carver-Hawkeye Arena, saying last year the arena has been a great friend and home to us for about 40 years, and we need to continue it to be so for more decades to come. Iowa Athletics began a feasibility study last year, marking the first first step towards a major renovation of Carver-Hawkeye Arena. Those plans are not yet finalized, but Goetz does envision it'll shrink just a bit, a little bit, before, from a seating capacity standpoint. Shrinking a venue a little bit does, and trying to make sure that we meet demand is likely an important way to think about things as we make those decisions, Goetz said. As for those who did show up last weekend's Iowa's, uh, for last weekend's Ohio, Iowa-Ohio State game, Goetz thought that they were an animated, passionate, and into the game, but she also recognized that they need to improve attendance. We're going to continue to do our best to make sure that we provide an environment that's going to get them here so we can support the program as best we can, Goetz said. Let's go on to another men's basketball article, this time Iowa State, with the article... Lipsy number 14 Cyclones seek season of sweep of T seeks season sweep of TCU. The Cyclones stood 2 and 2 in Big 12 play after an 87 to 82 loss at BYU 3 and a half weeks ago, and their designated floor general sophomore point guard Taman Lipsy had to sit out the following game at TCU because of a shoulder issue, injury. So how'd that go for him and his team? The first half was easy, Lipsy said, who hopes to have his number 14 ranked team sweep the Horned Frogs today at Hilton Coliseum. We're up 20 points, and I was having fun talking to the crowd. Then I got close to the end, and I knew our guys were going to pull through. ISU held on for a 73-72 win over TCU that day, in a game that typified what life in, what life in the expanded and even deeper Big 12 is like, in the 2023-2024 season. No lead is safe. Momentum can be illusionary. Illusory. That team that fully adheres to its bedrock principles tends to win. 
We have so much respect for the teams that we play and the coaches, the programs, and we know that we're the best league in the country and we're playing against the best, said Cyclone men's basketball coach TJ Otzelberger, whose team still leads the country in defensive steals percentage of 5.9, according to Ken Palm. So I think we're very intentional with our preparation. At the same time, we have tremendous confidence in what we do every single day. It doesn't mean we don't adapt and adjust to opponents. It just means our core values, the things that we want to do in terms of pressuring the basketball, being physical and keeping the ball in front of us, blocking out the offensive boards, our preparation is far more than just doing effort-based things to the best of our ability. So don't expect much to change for ISU as it seeks its fourth straight win over Jamie Dixon-led Horned Frogs in the series before a sold-out crowd at Hilton Coliseum. But it would be unwise to assume that TCU will approach its second meeting with the Cyclones in the same way, given it turned the ball over 27 times in the game where Lipsy was forced to witness from the bench. I think it was a little bit of an outlier game for them, Otzelberger said, and then even for us, we take pride in turning people over, but that's been probably our best game, certainly in league play at doing so, so we've got to be prepared for how they're going to have a bunch of different ways to try and space us out and attack us. A healthier Lipsy, who started all 54 games of the games he's played in since joining the program, could help ISU thwart those efforts. He's one of 15 players to be placed on the Nysmith Defensive Player of the Year watch list, and he's already set a single-game program record for steals with eight against Prairie View and A&M. Prairie View A&M. But his absence in the previous meeting with TCU allowed backup guard Curtis Jones to showcase his defensive prowess. He snared seven steals in that win in Fort Worth, so the Cyclones' disruptive tendencies don't solely rely on Lipsy's chaos-inducing abilities. Guard Kashan Gilbert and Kurt were able to step up and take his spot. ISU senior forward Robert Jones said, You lose out on one of the leaders like that in a big game on the road, and everybody's got to step up. Lipsy enjoyed watching, it, watching that happen. Even as the game got tense in the second half, he enjoyed it even more. He'd enjoyed it even more if he could help the Cyclones cement a sweep over the Horned Frogs, which will keep his team near the top of league standings. In this conference, every game is difficult, Otzelberger said. We've got just a little bit of time left, so let's read when some sports are happening today. we got men's basketball, TCU at Iowa State, 1 p.m., Lawrence at Cornell, 1 p.m., Iowa Western at Kirkwood, 3.30 p.m., Women's basketball, we have Oklahoma at Iowa State at 6 p.m., Bradley at UNI, 2 p.m., Iowa Western at Kirkwood at 1 p.m. Boys swimming, the state meet at Iowa Campus Recreation and Wellness Center, noon. Boys wrestling, we have Class 3A District at Prairie at 10 a.m., Class 2A Districts at Salon, West Delaware, and Independence, and Williamsburg at 10 a.m., Class 1A Districts at MFL Marmac at 10 a.m., and girls basketball, we have Marion at Kennedy at 1.30 p.m., Class 2A and Class 3A. And we have hockey, Cincinnati at Iowa, Heartlanders, 6.05 p.m., Chicago at Cedar Rapids Rough Riders at 7.05 p.m. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, February 10th. I'm your reader, Will Potter. 
You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.